0: produce parking without minimums? This week was Iveson's State of the City address, and City Council was also asked the question of whether parking minimums are holding our city back.
1: Plus, we've been advised not to bid on the Commonwealth Games, and we'll hear from our favorite friend of the podcast.
0: Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac, And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally.
1: Municipally. Welcome back
0: to Speaking Municipally, episode 37. We're... In the throes of summer now, Mac and I record in my upstairs office, and I'm in a semi-bungalow, so the sun beats down on the roof. And when we started this podcast in August, we just about killed each other because of the heat in the room. Today, it has reached almost 24 degrees in the room, so if we get parsnippity today, that is the only reason. Ooh, I like it. We still love you, dear listener. Cranking up the heat, it's the rapid-fire segment.
1: Starting today at 9 a.m., 101 Street and 102 Avenue between Manulife Place and City Center Mall will be closed to vehicle traffic for Valley Line construction. This closure will last a month, during which time neither vehicles nor cyclists can use the roadway. Pedestrians, however, will still be able to walk through the area near City Center Mall, a funny bit of irony, since pedestrians are the ones least able to access them mall usually.
0: After firmly cementing the Kenny Trudeau Alliance in their Ottawa meeting last week, Justin Trudeau is coming to Edmonton today to dot the I's on the Iveson Trudeau Alliance as he meets with our mayor. The report comes from Global News via their Global Trudeau Alliance. When asked if there was anyone he wasn't in an alliance with, the Prime Minister responded, Me and SNC-Lavalin are super friends off right now, so if you could tell the Simpsons that, that'd
1: be great. The Edmonton Telephone Historical Centre is calling it quits after the board played operator to the museum for 31 years. We're just not dialed in to what people want, and we didn't want to phone it in, so we're hanging it up. The best case scenario for revitalizing the popularity of the museum is to come back in 50 years and dedicate the museum to Samsung, making the board the guardians of the galaxy. Speaking Municipally is a proud member
0: of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. And one of the other members is fellow pun-named friend podcast, the Well Endowed Podcast, uh, by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink, and produced by Lisa Pruden. And it explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. In contrast to us, we just rant about the city every week on the podcast. They actually create endowment funds to help prominent Edmontonians achieve their dreams. The podcast tells stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. It comes out a couple times per month, and you can read the show notes, subscribe, listen to it at thewellendowedpodcast.com. So, Mac, last week, or the week before, I lose track of time. At some point in the past, we produced an episode called The Orange Dot. We did. That was two weeks ago. Yes. Uh, And we were talking about how Edmonton is this bastion of the orange dot, and we talking about how this harkens back to the past in the Ralph Klein days. And Iverson just straight up stole all our stuff, didn't he?
1: Pretty much. State of the City this week, uh, annual event that everyone looks forward to. Mayor Iverson got up in front of the packed room at the Edmonton Convention Center and delivered his speech. And this year, it sounded a lot like our podcast episode. He talked about how uh, the last time this happened, Edmonton was gutted and that we bore the brunt of public service cuts. And then he sort of made the case for why this time would be different and why the province should look to Edmonton to help solve all of its problems.
0: So let's take a step back. The State of the City Address, this is a annual address where the mayor gets up, and we like the State of the Union, which it emulates. He talks about his plans for the city, where we are, and where we're going forward. So typically it's a pretty uplifting event full of announcements. Last year we had... Health City and his...
1: Or a couple of years ago was Health City. Last year was the Innovation Corridor, which we've talked about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we usually have these ambitious announcements really saying, this is where we want our city to go. Did we see anything like that this year?
1: Not this year. It's a very different speech. Instead of getting up there and thinking about uh, what he's going to announce and talking about some sort of new initiative he's got... He, he mentioned briefly the Ask About Edmonton initiative that they ran during the provincial election. Uh, but the bulk of the time was spent on talking about why Edmonton is a stronger place today than it was 25 years ago, and why the provincial government should not treat us any differently just because we didn't vote for them. I think it's probably fair to say that
0: the state of the city wasn't really addressed to Edmontonians as much as it was addressed to the new provincial government. Uh, I heard that Iveson was actually seated against the Right across from the only UCP MLA in Edmonton, who's the Municipal Affairs Minister, Casey Madu.
1: Yeah, Casey Madu. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, one of the things he said very clearly was that uh, he he talked about um, Premier, Premier Kenny's previous comments about Edmonton being important to the province, and still feels weird to say Premier Kenny. It does. Doesn't it? I yeah. had to spit it out. Um, and and Iverson talked about how he wants to hold the government to account on that. He said Edmonton's success is integral to Alberta's success. And uh, the, the idea that Edmonton is deeply important to the government is something that he's going to continue to uh, champion and, and hold the government's feet to the fire on. He talked a lot about uh, the economy and and sort of why it's more resilient now. And he talked about, um, you know, how we have better infrastructure. One of the interesting things he talked about was the region. He said that in 2018, Metro Edmonton generated $100 billion towards Alberta's GDP. He said that's a third of Alberta's economy. He really made the case for... Edmonton and Calgary together being this powerhouse and this partnership that could allow Alberta to be a successful province uh, beyond in the country.
0: It bears reinforcing the idea that we can be unified with Calgary rather than competing with Calgary, because we saw that, as we mentioned in the Orange Dot episode, Calgary didn't get public service cuts, nearly to the extent that Edmonton did. Right. And I think this is what Iveson is specifically trying to avoid in this speech.
1: Yeah, he said, we can decide to chart a new course, leverage the complementary strength of both Metro Edmonton and Calgary, and build a globally competitive Alberta. So he was... Absolutely making the case that we can be stronger together. Um, In talking about Edmonton's strengths, he he talked about how we're not the same as we were in the mid-90s. He says Edmonton has grown and matured. He talked about uh, some of the recent success stories. So Improbable is a video game developer that set up shop here in in Edmonton. He talked about l ml He talked about Health City and the work that they're doing. He said we're a far more resilient city now. And then he had what for me was the weirdest quote from the whole speech He said, Edmontonians have demonstrated an adaptability that would put Darwin to shame. What does that mean? Yeah, I'm not sure. It just, it really stood out compared to everything else that he said. Charles Darwin didn't adapt. He just observed the
0: phenomenon. So I, I don't know why he would feel shame that people are adapting. Um, it's, it's a weird, weird line to throw in. It was,
1: and it was, it was sort of like, maybe it was in an earlier revision and it just got kept for some reason. It was a little bit strange compared to the rest of, of what he was talking about. He did talk about city plan briefly and mentioned that this is uh, an important thing that Edmonton is working on. And then he talked about the enablers of the economy, um, things like infrastructure, transit, education, and health. Those were the big things that he talked about.
0: Yeah. So again, speaking to the provincial government, because this is what's on the chopping block. We want our hospitals. We want our schools to remain funded be, and new schools because we're running out of high schools and we want the Valley Line LRT West to continue to be funded. So laying these out as priorities for Edmonton and therefore priorities to the province seems
1: like a tactic. Usually at these things, there are a couple of comments or, or remarks or something that gets some applause, right? And and usually you can tell the mayor's caught off guard or whatever. There was only one of those. This time, I don't have it off the top of my head. It'll be in our, in our show notes, but there was a study recently about youth and how Edmonton was ranked above of Montreal and Toronto and all of these other places um, as as a place for youth to want to come and and, and um, you know build their futures in, in Edmonton. And that got a lot of applause from the people in the audience. And he wasn't expecting that, I don't think. But there wasn't a lot else in the speech that was su- super rousing.
0: Uh, we'll move on from the State of the City address to actual homegrown Edmonton news, where we're talking about a made in Edmonton solution to parking.
1: Yeah, so this went to Urban Planning Committee this week. It was probably one of the bigger items at committee this week. A big study on, or or big review, I should say, comprehensive review on parking regulations, uh, really focusing on site parking. So on site parking as opposed to on street parking. And this is parking that is um, set out by rules in the zoning bylaw, which were written in the 1970s.
0: An astute listener will remember that Mill Woods won urban planning awards in the 70s. So if we're taking that as the best possible outcome, I think we can see why maybe these parking minimums need to be updated a little bit. Right. So for those who aren't familiar, Edmonton, in our zoning bylaw, we have parking minimums. So when you build a development, either a house or a business, you have to have a minimum number of parking stalls. Uh, For single family homes, that can be, it varies by place, but it can be four parking stalls. When you think about that, that's a lot of parking. That's a huge amount of parking. You can fit an entire house on four parking stalls. So logically, people are saying these parking minimums require lots of space in our city to be dedicated to just storage for cars. And cars aren't there most of the time. In fact, we found utilization was pretty low of our parking.
1: Yeah. So uh, the study found that um, a majority of parking lots are underused even during peak periods. And the number is just 7.5% of sites surveyed were found to have reached optimal utilization, which means 90% of the spaces were occupied during that peak observed occupancy. So translation, most of our parking is pretty empty most of the time. Even
0: worse, and that study was occurring during peak. So we're saying on Boxing Day... At the busiest time. When everyone's shopping, only 7.5% of our lots aren't full just getting close to full. Right. So from an efficiency perspective, that's a problem.
1: The other thing that was pointed out and uh, is related to a previous episode we did on the zoning of regulations is that most amendments have been to reduce or remove minimums. So there's already been this movement throughout the city toward getting rid of these parking minimums. We've seen pilots downtown to have uh, no parking minimums. And so the numbers to support this, I think, just really hammered home for committee this week that something needs to change. So administration basically put forward three options, didn't make a recommendation, said you could either go a parking minimum route, which is essentially what we have. You could go a parking maximum route, which is kind of bizarre. Or you can do what they call open parking, which is where you let the market decide. It's actually quite noticeable that administration didn't present a
0: recommendation because that's a change from the planning. When administration did consultation and shopped out the report and recommendation to stakeholders, there was actually a recommendation to city council. Administration was recommending that we abolish parking minimums and we go with this. What we ended up going with, sure, and what the report seemed to guide council to, but I thought it was very interesting that administration removed their recommendation before actually presenting it to council. It made me feel like administration was less behind it than they led the stakeholders to believe during consultation.
1: That could be, though if you read the report, I think it it's pretty clear that they like the open parking option. I mean, they talk about how it aligns better with existing policies and emerging policy direction. And they specifically mention, you know, evolving infill and missing middle and these other initiatives. So it was kind of like if you read the reports, like that's the one they really wanted. They just didn't want to come out and say it for some reason.
0: Council or committee voted on this, and they voted unanimously to send administration back and do some more research.
1: Yeah, essentially they like this open parking option, um, but they're not sure what the implications of that are. And one of the things that administration suggested it is that if we go with uh, let the market decide, that could increase the demand for on-street parking, right? And one of the things they found through through doing that survey and public engagement work was that Edmontonians feel entitled to the spaces in front of their homes. Uh, Even though they don't own them, they think that they do. And so if uh, all of a sudden you have less on-site parking, there's more demand potentially for a limited number of on-street spaces. And so they need to figure out what is the impact of that? What does it look like? And so they'll bring that report back along with some proposed policy changes. I struggle. I struggle a lot with this report because
0: I I, I can't care. I cannot care about any of these parking concerns. I'm sitting in my house. I've got a pad that can fit three cars on it and a garage that can fit one and a half to two cars in it. Right. I don't own a car. And Um, you have space out front. Yeah, I have plenty of space out front. And no one on my block, we live in the mature neighborhood overlay where... Every house has a rear detached garage with a pad in the back because the garage has minimum setbacks right specified by the MO. So we have a ton of parking available. Not a single one of my neighbors parks in their garage, and it's not even because they're just full of junk, though some of them are. They just don't because they want to park in the front. And that's a problem because that's half of all of the lots in my neighborhood are just wasted on this parking requirement. And this is echoed across the city. The idea that I should care about, oh, woe is me. Sometimes there might be spillovers and we might have to address two or three specific blocks because businesses have spillovers. And what if we go over? No, just stop. It's this doesn't matter. Just get rid of the parking minimums and let's start moving forward. My editorializing is over there. I'm not the only one who had this sort of opinion, though.
1: Yeah, our friend uh, and uh, and favorite columnist, Elise Stolte, uh, wrote something about um, parking, and it was titled, Council Can't Ignore the Massive Subsidy Behind Free, in quotations, parking. She actually got a retweet today I saw on Twitter from Donald Shoup, who literally wrote the book on this. He wrote uh, The High Cost of Free Parking, a really popular book among Policy wonks. Um, And she said, We have a parking pickle. She talked about how we have an overabundance of parking that is really expensive to provide.
0: So, one of the problems that city council identified it and started to grapple with in the debate was core areas versus suburban neighborhoods. So, you know, you have the downtowns or white ass or even most salient by the U of A, where all the streets are basically resident parking only because they didn't want spillover from students taking up the residential parking. That was the prediction from council is that if we start eliminating these parking minimums, there's going to be certain core dense areas that, you know, they bear the brunt of the decisions here and businesses will save money by not adding parking and there'll be some spillover in the core areas. And I can empathize a bit with this point because it further subsidizes suburban sprawl. If we're not making concerted choices to... Make the suburbs pay their way, which Don Iveson still holding you to your campaign promise here. Then, what we effectively do is if we eliminate parking minimums, we make it more expensive to live in the core if you want a car. And functionally, nothing changes in the suburbs because there's tons of space out there. You've got pads, you've got street parking. And I can empathize with that point because our roadways still get congested because we're still building out to the suburbs those people are still driving. And meanwhile, people in the core are paying extra for any parking that they have or giving up parking and living a different lifestyle without materially saving much money. If we just do this without, you know, any sort of forethought, we could theoretically passing that incentive.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things Elise writes in her article. She says people like to complain about transit subsidies or bike lanes But every city and business is forking out massive amounts of cash to subsidize private vehicles. We're just not recognizing it. So she's picking up on this idea that we have this invisible amount of money almost that's going to support uh, cars and and parking. And she talks about how it could create local battlegrounds and congestion as people search for a spot. The kinds of things that you're talking about might happen in the core. And so she says the solution is not just to add more free parking, it's not just to um, you know move remove all regulations there's got to be a happy medium here somewhere
0: one of the interesting ideas is it was proposed to council that maybe just there isn't any more free street parking right maybe everyone pays for parking which is an interesting idea. Because one, user fees, this is part of our core tenets of fiscal policy in the city. If there's a private benefit, which parking your personal property unquestionably is a private benefit, yeah. then the private entity should bear the cost of that. Theoretically, if we implemented paid parking all across the city, we could just lower taxes because instead of the amount of money being invisible, it becomes visible. Right. Uh, Councilor Nickel brought up a flaw in that, though, is just that would make the city a massive parking operator. And how do you enforce that? Because you're not going to send, you know, enforcement officials out to the suburbs to walk by
1: every two hours and write
0: license plates down.
1: Drones is the solution to that problem, my friend. (laughs) Uh,
0: I don't know that entering a surveillance state is the answer to free parking,
1: um, but it might be. I do like this idea, though, of charging for parking. I think one of the challenges that Edmonton has had in talking about shifting our transportation modes away from private vehicles to other forms of transportation is that we've not really used the stick and the carrot has always been really tiny. Uh, and and so if you want to change people's behaviors, give them some finance, financial incentives. And, and this would be one way to help do that.
0: I wonder if the solution is, I know there are certain cities in the U.S. that you can actually just take pictures of double-parked vehicles, and that's enough for the city to send a bylaw infraction ticket to that, the owner of that vehicle. Maybe that's the solution, is we get guerrilla urbanists implanted in every neighborhood to sleuthily issue parking tickets to all their neighbors. Maybe Maybe that's the way we want to go in Edmonton. That
1: could get out of hand. I like the drone idea better.
0: We're talking about the idea of you can't find a parking stall anywhere. When does that happen, if not at massive sporting events? And the Commonwealth Games, we were planning on bidding on the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton to host it in 2026.
1: 2026. That's right.
0: Yeah. And administration recommended we didn't do that.
1: Yeah. So they've now come forward and said we should pass on the opportunity. Like, I, I guess sometime this year we would need to express our interest. Uh, to Commonwealth Games Canada to say that we'd like to put our name forward as a host city for either 2026 or 2030, administration said, no, that's not a good idea, because we have this major event strategy that says we should try to do one of these big major events every 20 to 30 years, and we've already picked one, and that is the 2026 FIFA World Cup, which is Probably a more prestigious event anyway. I think so. Even though it's not entirely Edmonton, you know, being one of the host cities for an event like that is a really big deal. We haven't won it yet, by the way, but, it, you know, it looks promising, I guess. And so the recommendation is that we shouldn't try to host the Commonwealth Games in addition to uh, potentially hosting the, the FIFA World Cup. Well, I think it's really interesting. So I put this on the the list for us to talk about because I wanted to know what you uh-huh. thought about okay. this. But I've talked about major events in the past and, and I you know used to think that this is one of those things that big cities do, right? We host these events and we get people engaged. Lots of people volunteer. Edmonton has won awards for the amount of people that have come out to support things in the past, like the 2001 championships and athletics and the Grey Cup festivals and things like that. But on the other hand, I'm always skeptical of these sort of economic impact studies and how much money we actually generate for the economy and how much the benefit actually comes to the city. You know, they're very expensive to put on these big events and they're only getting more expensive over time as security concerns and other things increase. So I'm less bullish on them than I used to be. I am happy that there's some sort of a strategy now there's actually something that we can point to to say look this tells us when we're going to do events and this tells us when we're not going to do events because it seemed to be very erratic uh, prior to that so yeah
0: I'm in the same boat I've never once trusted the economic impact numbers that an event boasts it sure 800 million dollars is what the businesses in the area got during that event period but How do we know that money wouldn't have been spent elsewhere? How do we know how much of that is truly out-of-town money versus people that would have came for a different festival anyway? Right. These these are all sort of, like, nebulous numbers that it's clearly a best guess and maybe not even best. So I used to be very negative on all the sporting events because, just like, frankly, I don't care. And, like, I'm not going to go to these events because... I don't love the atmosphere of a sporting event. I, I don't drink. So having a rowdy, drunken soccer fan spilling his beer on me, I don't know. Don't love it. But the big caveat is I remember when the Oilers made the playoffs a couple seasons ago, our city was great. The liveliness downtown with the arena, It when you get the sporting event center, not, you know on the yellow head in a corner of the city, but actually in the core of our city where people spill over downtown onto White Ave and there's just life everywhere. That was exciting to me. I, I didn't care much whether the Oilers won or lost, but I was watching the playoffs games because it was infectious. And if that life comes with every sporting event, I think that's something that you can't just purchase. Uh, with money. You can't just say, here's some money, go have a party. Well, maybe you could. Maybe that's the strategy. City Council, instead of funding a sporting event, just gives everyone free money to buy some MDMA. But barring that plan, I do love the idea of the life and vibrancy that it brings to the city. And I think the Oilers getting to the playoffs was the best possible selling point of people who were skeptical of the arena. I think During that period is when people who said, oh, we shouldn't have built the arena downtown. This is a stupid idea or cats got the better of the city. I think that's when people started to realize, oh, there's a benefit here.
1: Yeah, I think the Oilers are a unique example, though, right? Um, (laughs) That's true. There's a lot that goes along with that. That wouldn't come along with the Commonwealth Games or even a even a World Cup. Um, I agree with you that there's some benefit in that sort of camaraderie that comes out of these things and the sort of civic pride that people feel like my city hosted this really big thing or in the case of the Oilers, you know, my team made it all the way. I remember the Cup run, the last Cup run that we had. It was like that, and you know, not the people burning garbage cans on White <laughs> Avenue, but the other stuff. Like there was a lot of excitement and it was a lot of fun to be a part of, right? And these big spectacles. Um, can really do that, but they're fleeting, right? And they don't last. And so you've got to make sure that you get more return on it than it costs you to put on. Um, In the case of the Oilers, maybe that's easier to do. But in the case of a big event like this, which you have to spin up, do a whole bunch of stuff and then tear down again, um, they're quite expensive productions. And that said,
0: I don't know that we're going to get the excitement for the Commonwealth Games that we get for an Oilers playoff
1: run. so what, what do you think about World Cup? Yeah, so World Cup, absolutely. It's just a different animal, right? For the
0: novelty of doing it, because this is something that we haven't done before, I think we should. Um, but, you know, actually 100% behind administration. We're doing the World Cup. We don't need to do the Commonwealth. Yeah. So jumping out of the abstract, that's dealing with the issue. I think we got to close the episode on good old friend of the podcast, John D from Ward 3. I didn't follow a ton of stuff this week. I was very busy. So when... You put together some of the notes for this episode, and I saw what John D. said this week. I just looked up and I said, thank you, Iveson, for chairing this meeting. This is a gift, what you've given me, John D.'s comments.
1: So, Mac, why is John D. on our radar? So the reason I put this on the notes is he made a notice of motion. He said at the next you know meeting he's going to... Um, put forward a motion, and he, uh, two of them, actually. The first is called uh, Distracted Pedestrian Roadway Crossing Restriction Options. So he wants to find out how we can restrict pedestrians from crossing a roadway while distracted.
0: And we've actually got a clip of John D. introducing that motion, so this is worth listening to. Thank you. I, so pedestrians are most vulnerable when crossing roadways in urban areas, and North American jurisdictions are seeing high numbers of distracted walking incidents. Uh, being distracted as a pedestrian, particularly, particularly when crossing a roadway, puts pedestrians and other roadway users at risk. To help all road users safe, to keep, sorry, to keep all road users safe, I would like administration to explore options to ensure pedestrians have their full attention on the roadway. Therefore, at the May 14th City Council meeting, I'll move the following. That administration provide a report with options to restrict pedestrians from crossing a roadway while distracted, including consultation with stakeholders and a review of comparable bylaws from other
1: municipalities.
0: So, um, first, North American jurisdictions are seeing a high number of distracted pedestrian incidents. I'm going to put a big citation needed under there. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and
1: are you familiar with the Seattle Underground? Oh, you mean like the old city that's yeah, underneath yeah. the existing city? Okay, sorry. It took me a minute. Okay, I'm, there. I'm with you.
0: So, well, and I guess podcast listeners might not be. So Seattle built on a floodplain. Uh, when Seattle was initially built, it was all wood stick frame buildings. Yep. And they were built on a floodplain. So they were constantly flooding because water would come in, water would go out. There was a massive fire in Seattle and it burned everything down. And city planners said, hey, you know what? We can do better. So they made laws that, you know, all buildings had to be brick and cement. So they were immune to fire and said, Hey, you know what, while we're rebuilding everything, let's rebuild the street two stories higher, right? Because then we don't flood. Uh, Of course, all these buildings were sort of built. So what it functionally meant is you had the ground floor of the building, and then the street was built two stories up. So to cross the street in Seattle, you had to climb up a ladder cross the street, and climb down a ladder on the other side to get into the buildings. Right. I bring this up because there are at least 19 known cases of people coming out of a bar, being drunk, or just looking at the birds and falling off the street, falling a couple stories down to their deaths. Um, This is Seattle a long time ago. Before you were browsing Reddit or Facebook on your cell phone, I don't think the solution in Seattle was, Hey, People are falling off our roadway because they're distracted. Let's make it illegal to walk on the roadway. No, they said, hey, why don't we get rid of the ladders and build the sidewalks higher? And this is the same problem that with John D's motion. He's saying roadways are unsafe to cross. Yeah, but it's not because pedestrians are distracted. It's because the roadways are unsafe. Hence Vision Zero. We've talked about this before, John
1: D. Please, please try to keep up. I agree with you. Taproot has written about this before. Um, we, we did an extensive article on, on why we treat pedestrian deaths differently than homicides. And it really comes down to only one of you, pedestrian driver, is in charge of a 2,500 pound weapon. And that's not the pedestrian. And so it shouldn't matter that you're distracted if you're, if you're walking around because you're running into another pedestrian is not going to do any harm, but you getting hit by a vehicle really will. So it really just is another example of uh, this sort of pushback on on this trying to shift transportation modes and adopt things that actually make a difference for Vision Zero. And, uh, and it puts the onus on the pedestrian, which is wrong. Well, and he specifically said Quote,
0: Being distracted as a pedestrian, particularly when crossing a roadway, puts pedestrian and other roadway users at risk. I don't know what risk I put the F one fifty at when I. Sure. Oh no, he's got his AirPods in. I'm gonna need to take out a better insurance policy. <laughs> the other motion John D made was about cyclists, and he was less of a buffoon when introducing that motion. But essentially, it's the standard things. Cyclists don't follow the rules of the road. Tell us, city administration. What laws govern cyclist behavior, what's acceptable cyclist behavior on a shared use paths, and what's being done to enforce it? And now when you put these two things together, it's not hard to see what he's
1: doing. Where is he coming from, I wonder?
0: John D is creating this wedge issue. He knows, or I hope he knows, that what he's saying is garbage. It is literally garbage speak, but... It's something that a lot of the population agrees with. Or can at least sympathize with. Yeah. There's this divide between drivers and cyclists. You know, heaven forbid a cyclist actually drive a car at any point in time. When you can create this wedge issue between himself and the mayor who's championing active transportation, then you've got a political divide. And this is politics 101. If you can create a wedge issue, you can rile people up and people, despite what they'll say, prefer being angry to being calm. Mission accomplished. This motion administration is going to come back and say the report in less callous terms are going to say,
1: dude, you're a knob. Stop it.
0: (laughs) But he doesn't need the motion to say anything. Right. He's already
1: accomplished what he wanted to.
0: By making the motion at the meeting. And administration, telling administration to do the report, he's already done everything he needs to.
1: I guess we shouldn't have given him any coverage. Yeah, but you can't not. This
0: is my life. It's <laughs> listening to what John D says. Um, But that's all we
1: really have time for this week. Except for an ad.
0: Except for an ad. Good call.
1: Uh, this week, we're going to tell you about Perch, a podcast by ATB Financial. It's hosted by Rob Roach of ATB's economics and research team. And it connects with the experts, influencers, and big thinkers who are shaping our province. Each episode connects to the topic of the most recent issue of Perch, which is a research publication produced by ATB. The current series is about entrepreneurship, and you can check it out at atb.com perch. So next week, it's May
0: 14. There's a big week next week. The core zone's coming back, and council will make a decision there, hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, also, John D. will make his motions saying... Distra- All right, one more th- one more thing on the distracted walking, okay? One, he says distracted walking, which I can't get over. But also, what are the implications of this? So, we're talking about distracted driving, you know, it's as or more dangerous than being drunk behind the wheel. Yeah. Okay. But people can get drunk. How do people who are drunk exist under this distracted walking law? If a cab is across the street from the bar and you want to get a ride home. How do you do it? You can't cross the road because you're drunk. You're a walker. You put all road users in danger when you cross the road (laughs) without full sobriety and attention. Oh my God. I'm I'm done. I'm done. Until next week. I'm Troy.
1: I'm Mac. And we're speaking Speaking municipally. municipally. John D.